Hello and welcome to another Film Nerds Roundtable Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Scalisi. Uh, and today, we're going to be talking about uh, what is certainly the first major hit film of 2009, uh, The Watchmen. And uh, we're, we're going to be taking a look at, uh, obviously, what, what someone thinks who is very familiar with the source material that The Watchmen is based on, and also what... Uh, the thoughts of uh, of a typical moviegoer who is not familiar with the original source material. And with us today is uh, Sean Hode, who you'll all know from our zombie series. Uh, Sean is, uh, I, I believe, Sean, are you currently teaching a, a class regarding The Watchmen at the University of Alabama? Right. Yes. Okay. And, uh, and also with us, Ben Flanagan, a regular contributor. Uh, and Ben is, uh, like me, unfamiliar with the source material upon which The Watchmen is based. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. I wouldn't say I'm unfamiliar with yeah, it. Yeah, well, you haven't read that, it, though. Yeah. I think, I, I think I'm think i a little more familiar with than you, I guess. Probably, you know? probably. But not, by, but not by much. I'm not. I'm no Sean Hode. <laughs> <laughs> That's something to be proud of. <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> well... Well, obviously, this movie uh, this movie had some good immediate impact from a box office standpoint. It did fifty five million dollars its opening weekend. Obviously, it was a big event film, uh, but kind of kind of had a mixed reception from critics. Roger Ebert uh, was one of the probably the biggest name of of guys that really praised this movie. He, he absolutely loved it. Four star review. Uh, but the New York Times, A. O. Scott was was very critical of it. Did not like it at all. Really. Um, and, and I think we've seen sort of across the board, it's been a pretty even split. Um, and I think you're going to see that a little bit with, with a movie like this that's that's based on a beloved piece of source material. And I want to talk to Sean first and get his impressions because, Sean, obviously when, when you're familiar with what the film is based on, you're going to go into the film looking for certain things and with, with a different set of expectations really than, than someone else would. Right, right. I mean, you say that, you know, for the source material, you know, the, the L word, literature, dare not speak its name, I guess, in this case. Um, but a lot of people do look at the, at, you know, as, at the Watchmen graphic novel as a piece of literature. You know, as you guys know, it was voted by Time magazine, one of the 100 best novels since 1923. And um, people were going into it as this, there's this treasured, this treasured piece of, uh, of art that they love and, and how, how might it be either set or sacrificed at the altar of commercialism? And Sean, uh, just just to turn you into into uh, movie reviewer briefly, I, I, I'd like to hear your your thoughts just in terms of, uh, I guess you want to call it the faithfulness of the adaptation. You as someone who is obviously a sort of I, I don't know if I would call you a fan, but you're certain you certainly are are uh, someone who admires the original. Uh, Watchmen graphic novel is is this something that did, how how did you feel about the movie in terms of how much it was able to yeah. uh, recreate what was great about the book? Okay, well, it's really good. Now I'm I would definitely call myself a fan of the work, and I don't you know I don't dress up as Rorschach on the weekends or anything like that, but um, but I definitely uh, 
have read it. I've read it for my own pleasure, and now, of course, going deeply into it in the class, I'm learning a lot of things that I didn't know about it. But I think as far as when you're talking about the faithfulness of the adaptation, I think what they did was they took the spirit of the book and the, the feeling of reading the graphic novel, and they transferred that to the screen. The problem that you have with adapting Watchmen is that the, the, the graphic novel itself is a, is a sort of it's not a, it's not a parody, but it's sort of a, a takeoff on you know superhero comics. And all and comics in general, all the conventions and everything. And of course, that's kind of irrelevant in the movie. So in the movie, what they did was they took on a lot of movie um, sort of uh, conventions and 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 played with those. And I think they did a really I think they did a really great job. There was of course a lot of the subtlety as you get in any any book adaptation. A lot of the subtlety was lost. They hammered some things home. And it also starred the worst actress in the Western Hemisphere, uh, Malin Ackerman. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I don't remember who first said this, but I'm going to repeat it. It might have been Pauline Kael or something. She could not convey the sense of falling if you pushed her off a cliff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree with you there. Not, not having a, a standard for that character to live up to myself, I was still obviously disappointed with with that casting choice. And really this is not an all-star cast. There there's some impressive names if you're if you're really into movies that you would that you might think, well that that's an interesting casting choice. I I, I could get into that. Uh, but certainly this you're is talking, you're talking about Jackie Earl Haley, aren't you? Sure. I mean that's that's something that I think interests a lot of people to see his name in the cast, but but uh, is it Ackerman or Ackerman or what are we going with here? I I don't I mean I don't know if we really need to learn the pronunciation. She's she's clearly Ben Ben and I discussed this earlier in the week. I think she's getting cast in a lot of things right now because a she she does have a pretty face, but b mostly because unlike a lot of other uh, established and somewhat respected actress uh, actresses of her generation, uh, she ha- she appears to have no problem with nudity, and I think that's probably why she got <laughs> this role and a lot of other roles. Ben. Would you would you agree about about disliking the sort of lead actress here? Well, I, I don't dislike Malin Ackerman uh, on the whole because I think she's done some funny work, uh, particularly in the Ben Stiller vehicle, Heartbreak Kid. She has a lot of funny uh, moments, you know, in terms of her physical comedy that she's able to do. She's talented to an extent, but I think that uh, she appears to be out of her element here. Um, this doesn't really seem like a comfortable genre for her, you know, neither the superhero genre or the, um, dramatic one, um, at that too. I think that, um, she's better fit for comedies and also in, in terms of her level of acting and, uh, her skills, I don't think that she can really play ball, so to speak, with, uh, the likes of Jackie Earl Haley, Billy Crudup, and even Patrick Wilson and, uh, some of the other actors, who um, sort of bring their A-game to this movie and to their unique characters. And honestly, I, I haven't read the source material all the way through. I'm, I'm only partially familiar with it, but uh, the character of Silk Spectre 2 for Laurie, uh, the, at least the one that Zack Snyder uh, brings to the screen, it's not a very interesting character, and it doesn't really, it doesn't really provide much depth for an actress to sort of explore. And, uh, it is the same. It is the same deal in the graphic novel. She's she's there. She all of the other characters are based on on particular uh, 
characters from Charleston Comics, which DC bought out, you know, years ago. Um, except her, she's just kind of an amalgam of of different female <laughs> right. female well, kind of, non superheroes. Well, yeah, you just have that sort of feeling of uh, we need an obligatory female superhero within this group of uh, brawny men. You know, it just seems like kind of a man's world that uh, Silk Spectre just kind of uh, happens to also inhabit. So I, I just don't think that you know, like like I said, maybe it's Alan Moore's fault. Uh, from from the onset, but the character Silk Spectre just isn't very interesting, and um, Ackerman isn't really, she's not really able to bring any sort of, um, I don't know, she's not really able to bring much to a a character that isn't very dynamic to begin with. I want to, I want to put uh, if I could, if I have a second, I'd I'd like to really put the nerd in film nerds here, um, in that it's she, almost like a non-entity, like you say, um, less in the movie than in the book, actually. But in the book, um, I can kind of see what Moore was going for because in the history of comics, uh, history of superhero comics, they have been unable to find a really um, a really interesting female figure, including Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman has been reinvented so many times, they don't seem to know what to do with her. And so I think maybe Silk Spectre was a little bit, um, you know, was a little bit of a of a comment on that, but she's actually more interesting in the movie because of the way the plot works than 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 even in the book. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, here here's something I've thought about lately, uh, looking back on some of the different aspects of the movie, particularly the opening credits where we're um, introduced to a character via uh, images only, and it's the non Silk Spectre female um, group member of the Minutemen. The original Silk Spectre One, yeah. No, 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 not Silk Spectre One. I'm saying the other, the other one. Uh, oh, Silhouette, Silhouette. The, the, the lesbian. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, her character, based on the two, three times we see her in the movie, the things she does, I would have almost liked to have seen her replace Silk Spectre Two in this 1985 universe. <laughs> you know what I mean? She, it just seems like a more interesting character that would have fit well with characters like Rorschach and, uh, you know, Doctor Manhattan. You know what I mean? She just sort of seems to fit the bill a little better, and I, I, don't, I liked what I saw there. And it's so hard to criticize, um, you know, a filmmaker who is adapting something. So it's you know, and having only seen the film, it's hard to say, well, this was Zack Snyder's fault when it's really Alan Moore's fault for having the idea that Zack Snyder is drawing upon. Ben, you touched on something there that I want to bring up really quickly and and get Sean's perspective on this uh, is. I, I was really interested uh, in all of the the flashback scenes to that era, to the Minutemen era, because I just thought that was such an interesting territory to explore uh, because that's obviously really where this universe supposedly branches off from our real world. Everything else we're sort of asked to believe is the same, except it branches off at that point when people started putting on masks and becoming heroes. And I, right. I really liked I really liked all of the stuff with uh, with Carla Gugino as the original Silk Spectre and sort of uh, her dynamic within the group uh, and and obviously what the comedian you know being kind of a kind of a scummy uh, misogynistic male of that era. Sean, how much how much does the does the original book go into that? And uh, was there was there a lot left on the table for Snyder to? to do more with or did he you know do we pretty much get all of that in the movie well you know of course not not all of it but you do get a lot of it and um actually the way that snyder presents it makes how the how the different parts 
fit together more clear. Uh, the book is is extremely um, you know complex, as I'm sure you guys know, but but it's uh, I mean, extremely complex for a graphic novel. It's not you know War and Peace, but um, they uh, but he Zack Snyder, who I happen to love, he he um, really does a great job of, of establishing the relationships between the characters, and unfortunately, there isn't enough room to go into the Captain Metropolis, uh, you know, his backstory. Mothman, who's the person you see being carted off to the mental hospital in the beginning, um, in the opening credits, or Hooded Justice, who's the guy with the hood and the noose around his neck. Um, you don't really get to see them, you know. But the people who are actually take part in the actual story, um, you, you, he, he did a fantastic job, I think, with that. I, I've got a a question I need clearing up. Is the is that the comedian that shoots Kennedy? Yeah. It is okay. I wasn't clear. Yep. I, I I wasn't sure if I read. So so he assassinates JFK because he he's, yeah. The thing is, he he becomes this this spook for he becomes a spook for the uh, for the government. He just he becomes a tool of the government, and that was showing that. And I thought that was pretty clever. I also liked how Doctor Manhattan took a picture of uh, uh, Buzz Aldrin or whoever on the moon there. Right. That was a beautiful <laughs> shot in the opening credits of the the reflection of Doctor Manhattan in the helmet. It was, it was great. Pfizer. Yeah. They, it, it's uh, in 1938, um, according to the to the book. Uh, you got Hooded Justice was first this masked superhero, and they started because the criminals were wearing masks. So why not, why don't we have these vigilantes wear masks? And uh, then Hollis Mason got into it as the first Night Owl, and and I think you get a lot of you. There's Hollis Mason gets murdered in the in the book. And in fact, I know that they filmed that for the movie because it's in one of the previews. Huh. Uh, but they but they cut it out for length, and I'm sure it'll be on the DVD. The four hour plus. For it. <laughs> exactly. How long is the DVD cut? That's true. Be? That's true. It's going to be four hours plus. Wow. Uh, plus the Black Freighter stuff. Plus your made a doc, quote you know documentary of Under the Hood for that they're releasing on the 24th. Right. It's it's really I can just geek out all day with that. <laughs> I think. Ben, you know. You and I ha are coming at this pretty much as as just filmgoers experiencing this only as sort of uh, a movie for the first time, um, and I think uh, to me I, I can certainly see uh, where th th the material could potentially be you know something that's really moving and uh, and interesting as a graphic novel. I felt like it didn't all really come together. I didn't really ever get that. Um, that one sort of overriding sense of, of a point being made in this movie. I, I, I'm not being very clear, but I, I mean, it, to me, it just it, it kind of never gelled the way that the way yeah. that I think the book probably did. Did you get a sense of that, Ben? Well, Matt, I, you know, I think that you and I went into the movie uh, under different circumstances. I think you went um, completely fresh, and uh, you know, as a person who had not even glanced at the source material. Now I, I did probably about as much research on the characters and on the, the book itself without reading the entire book. You know what I mean? I would, I would scroll through the internet, read character descriptions, watch, um, you know, interviews with Alan Moore and things like that. Uh, and I did kind of get the sense uh, of what people were talking about when they called it unfilmable. And, um, having watched the movie, uh, I, you know, I have to really hand it, to Zack Snyder, who a lot of people, for some reason, have very low expectations for because he's a younger filmmaker. Even though he's 43, this is only his third uh, feature film uh, to date since Dawn of the Dead and 300. 
Um, but I really do feel like Zack Snyder has major chops as not only a visual storyteller, but also in terms of narrative. And I think that Watchmen is arguably his best movie today, and I think he's battling it out with Dawn of the Dead, which was a terrific remake. Um, but, no, Matt, I, you know, I, I think that, like, any movie that has flaws that isn't necessarily based on uh, such rich source material that has such a huge following, I think that there are some um, flaws or faults within the narrative that, um, yeah, kind of create sort of a, a, a jumbled experience. It is, it is a mess. It's a dense mess. It has a lot to say, and it doesn't have much time to say as much as it wants to. But overall, I think that it is a good movie. I think it's a strong movie with a strong story and, a, and an interesting message. It does have something interesting to say, and it has just these wonderful visuals to tie it all in, um, tie the whole experience in together. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of with you because it has so many storylines and it spans so much time um, that you know I would have almost been happy to have sat there for four hours or however however much time I needed to because I'm that interested in the characters. You know, I, I would have right. lo- I, I would have loved to have spent more time with Rorschach, particularly or Doctor Manhattan. And the more screen time for them, the better. If that meant less screen time for Silk Spectre or Night Owl <laughs> or uh, um, um, Ozzy Mendias, well, is I- that how you Sean? Uh, I think that's how they said it in the movie. I always pronounced it Ozymandias, but I'm not a, not well, a, a okay, scholar or okay, a uh, scholar. Fight them. We'll say fight. Um, <laughs> fight. Yeah, if it meant spending less time with those characters, I would have been totally fine with it. But, but yeah, man, I, I do agree with you that uh, for the most part, we, we are kind of, you know, smacked in the head with a little bit, you know, more than we can handle as people who aren't familiar with the source material. Yeah, but, um, and I and I think one of the, you know one issue here is that you've got to you've got to have your quotient of of action scenes in this movie and of other things like uh, developing a romantic storyline. There was obviously a big uh, emphasis on that. We end up getting uh, what I felt like was the the only really bad scene in the movie, which is that <laughs> awful sex scene. It just just uh, ludicrous. I don't want to listen to Leonard Cohen while watching. Uh, you know, everything about it was bad. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure all the I'm sure all the fanboys out there hated seeing boobies on the screen. I look. I'm just saying. The, there's <laughs> There's a right way to do it and a wrong way, and that, that well, look, was not the right way to do that's, it. That's Zack Snyder's third movie, and it's his third uh, gratuitous sex scene. Uh, <laughs> in each movie, he has one, and I think out of the three— But you know what's funny? If I can just say, if I can just interrupt you, that is straight. That whole sequence is straight from the graphic novel. Yeah. I, including I, she hits the flamethrower with her elbow or whatever. Ridiculous. It, it, All that is completely from the graphic novel. Right. Well— <laughs> Well, you know, thing, you know, so, he's obviously got some sort of complex. Yeah. You know. Well, the thing is, he keeps, he keeps that in, but then there's some other stuff as a fan of the novel that I would have liked to see. But that's that's one of those things where you can't please you, you won't please anybody if you're trying to please everybody. Right. And Sean, what, what I want to what I want to sort of ask you about relating to this is, you know, we we have these things that the prison breakout is obviously that's a good bit of running time. You have the romantic storyline taking up a good bit of the film. And what I feel like, this is just as an outsider, I feel like there's a really interesting discussion to be had at the end of this film. And I feel like it's probably the whole uh, gist of the book, the, the idea of uh, creating disaster uh, in order to sort of manufacture some sort of world peace. And I feel like they, they, they don't really have a lot of minutes left to discuss that. I mean, 
Am I am I missing this here? I mean, I felt like there were sort of there was in an effort to make this a flashier movie, we miss out on what was probably the main intellectual content of the book. Well, what's interesting, uh, I see what you're saying. What's interesting though is that um, you guys uh, are. I mean, you. I'm forty. Okay, so I you know I could die in the middle of this podcast. But um, <laughs> I remember, you know, 1985, and I remember when the Cold War was full on, and we fully expected there to be, with Ronald Reagan in the White House, a nuclear war. Everybody expected it. And the fear and dread and everything uh, that, we, that was associated with that, they captured perfectly in the graphic novel, and I think they did an extremely good job in the movie. But the, the, the problem is one of, this is one of the things why they considered it unfilmable for a while until Zack Snyder just said, hey, let's just do it like it is in the book, you know, um, is, that, is that there isn't that fear of nuclear war anymore. There's more like fear of rogue states and, uh, and uh, you know, 9-11, type, you know, terrorism and things like that. And that, in fact, is the way that Darren Aronofsky wanted to go with it. But you, it, it, uh, it has, it's, it's a piece of this, you know, fake uh, 1985 that has the real part of 1985 with that dread about it. And I think they got the, the dread across well. And I have to tell you, and your listener, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read the book and seen the movie. I think the – this might be sacrilege. I think the ending in the movie is far superior intellectually, um, dramatically, any way you can name it, um, dr- superior to the one in the book. However, it's not in any way a comment on on the comic superhero genre which is what the point was in, in the book, which is definitely not the point in the movie. I don't um, know if that answered your question at all. Well, <laughs> yeah, at a, at a risk of – Ben might want to plug his ears up during this part. But, but could, you, could you elaborate on that a little? Why, why do you think it is uh, better in the film than in the book? In, in the book, okay, uh, it is an extremely complex plot involving kidnapped writers and artists who have worked on this pirate story that's interspersed throughout the book. Because in this universe, since there were actual superheroes – Superhero comics never took off, but what took off were pirate comics. <laughs> so someone, we'll just call him Adrian Vite, has taken um, all of the these these writers and artists and things and brought them to this island, and they've got this 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 thing that they're creating. Um, it is that which, and this is tell me tell me that this isn't a, a, just a, a dramatically flat moment. The the comedian happens to see the island while he's flying over and sees what happens. Okay, that is that's very dramatically unsatisfying. Sure. But um then they 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 uh they create basically the same idea, not framing Dr. Manhattan, but creating a fake threat that it, that brings the world together to not have nuclear war. Which is which is, you know, what everybody thinks is gonna happen. So it's the same ending as the book as far as, you know, in effect, but it's, but it's done much more, um, uh, much more smoothly and clearly, but it loses what a lot of, what, what a lot of people who love comics and especially superhero comics, um, love, which is comment on the genre, you know. Thank you for that explanation, by the way, Sean. But I, I, I want to. Did that help? I don't. I can no, never no. tell if these things help. No, that's that was good. No, hold on, man. I, I agree with uh, Sean here. I know. I know exactly what happens at the end of the book. I've read about it. 
Um, and I have looked in the book towards the end, you know, just because I was jumping around. So I have, you know, I have some basis to compare the two. And I do agree that I don't, I don't know because I haven't read the entire thing if it's uh, necessarily better. I can't say whether or not it is, but um, knowing both and having seen the entire movie, I'm completely satisfied with what they did at the end. Maybe not in terms of how they crammed everything into the final half hour the way they did, <laughs> right. you know, from a, te- you know, just from a, a narrative standpoint um, and from, a, you know, Snyder's point of view. But um, yeah, you know, I would have been fine with a squid, but I'm perfectly fine with uh, the route these writers chose to take uh, by framing Dr. Manhattan, uh, you know, framing the Manhattan right. character. And um, basically, I think, I th- if I can try to complete your thought there, yeah. I think the 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 the, the framing Doctor Manhattan idea, um, you know, really works in the movie, you know, because you can't go back and flip the pages back in a obviously in a movie and go, wait, what happened back there? But you can do that in uh, you know, in a in a comic book or in a graphic novel. I want to I want to hit on something we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, which is Jackie Earl Haley's performance as Rorschach. Uh, we haven't really talked about that character much. I, I think, uh, as a as a moviegoer, this to me was uh, this was the star uh, element of the movie. This is this was certainly uh, I, I saw this movie in a, in a packed house at a nine thirty p.m. showing uh, on on Saturday night, uh, and by far Rorschach got the the biggest reaction from the crowd. There were people cheering at some of his lines and. Uh, laughing at his at his jokes and stuff. Pe- people people really responded to this character, uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with Haley's performance, which is uh, uh, to me reminded me a lot of uh, Mickey Rourke in Sin City. It, it was a it was a nice sort of throwback <laughs> role, kind of kind of takes you back to those uh, to the you know '40s gangster film type performances. Um, Sean, can you can you talk a little about about the Rorschach character? Uh, in the book, and whether or not you think Haley sort of really captured that. Yeah. Oh, sure. Well, easily. E- that's the easiest question. Haley absolutely nailed it. Um, I mean, completely. Uh, and the thing is, right? The graphic novel's been around for you know twenty something years, and in it, I mean, Rorschach is a character in a comic. He doesn't actually have a voice. Um, his words are all printed. You know. However, I think that Jackie Earl Haley and Zack Snyder together made him sound exactly like the voice that we all heard in our head reading the book. And it, and it, it fit perfectly. Um, so his performance was great, and I, and I don't want to be sacrilegious once again, but I think that Heath Ledger's Joker was, was masterful, and I really do think that he deserved uh, the Oscar for that. But in The Dark Knight, there really wasn't a whole lot else really going on except the Joker, so it was really obvious how fantastic his performance was. In this, you've got a lot of other really wonderful things going on, so it might not be as obvious. Uh, also, he's got the mask on. Uh, might not be as obvious to people how just how much he nailed it. Ben, your thoughts on, on Haley and Rorschach? You know, Sean, I'm glad you mentioned um, Heath Ledger's Joker performance because that is a performance that I thought of um, several times while I was watching this movie, in particular the Rorschach performance, because I think that like Ledger, uh, whenever Ledger or whenever Rorschach is on the screen uh, or Haley uh, is on the screen, you're completely captivated. You're always <laughs> inter- you're always entertained with what he's saying. The, the, the writing is great, so credit the screenwriters there, but Haley just gets it. 
and he delivers it with just like a you know roundhouse punch against the audience, knocks us out over and over and over. And like the Joker in The Dark Knight, whenever he's off the screen, you kind of miss him, and you're kind of thinking, I'd rather see Rorschach right now because I, I just enjoy that character so much. And, um, <laughs> you know, in a, in a perfect world, uh, it's very early, but in a perfect world, movie world, um, he'd be an early candidate right now for the Best Supporting Actor Oscar because I think the, the performance is at that high of a level. And I, I'm glad to see Haley achieving what he's been able to over the past few years with this and uh, Little Children, which also starred Patrick Wilson back in 2006. Um, hey, right. hey, I mean, he's come a long way since the Bad News Bears. Yeah, where, where he was, <laughs> he was awesome as Kelly Leak, and that too was awesome in Breaking Away. So the guy's got talent. Just it seems like people might have been afraid to cast him, but he's been able to just sort of uh, coincidentally slide into these perfect roles for him. But right. I, I, I just I don't think that there, you know, there certainly hasn't been a scene so far in 2009, and I, d- I doubt there will be a scene that will be as uh, much fun to watch or a sequence as when Rorschach is in prison. And huh. when he is in the lunch line uh, in the middle of that sequence uh, going through and this guy comes up with the shank and threatens him and you know Rorschach's reaction to it and his line where he says, you people just don't get it. I'm paraphrasing here. You're not in here or I'm not in here with you. You're in here with me. Yeah. That true unbelievable response from my crowd but just for me specifically that was like a fist pump moment a great <laughs> a prob- to me probably uh, where the movie peaked you know in terms of its yeah. just pure entertainment value and is it i don't know it's i don't think it's coincidence that that exact um all every line in that scene is to and the scenes where um where a uh, big figure the the vertically challenged guy is is talking with Warshock while Warshock's in his cell all that is taken, I mean, lifted directly from the comic. Well, Sean, let me ask you this: is uh, that you know, among the three of us, certainly the expert on the matter? Um, oh boy! Yeah. Well, I think this. I think you this prison. Is, yeah, yeah. I've been. I, I did my time. <laughs> I think this. I think this is an easy one. Um, do you think that Rorschach uh, might have been the best realized character from novel to screen, handled by Snyder? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. Um, Night Owl was given a lot more depth in the movie, but Rorschach already had so much depth, and then you got the – this is like the reason why you make an adaptation of a piece of literature is you saw Rorschach come alive completely. There was not a moment where I'm thinking, oh, that's a guy playing Rorschach. I mean I, obviously I know that it's a guy playing Rorschach, but I didn't feel for one second that he was – you know, this is – oh, I'm watching some acting. I was completely absorbed. Also, people are, um, as uh, um, as Matt was saying, people are, I think, really drawn to Rorschach because, I mean, I'm a writer and I also teach creative writing. And what you want, the most, the most effective thing you can have in a, a fictional story, in a dramatic story, is a steadfast protagonist. And, I mean, he says never compromise, even in the face of Armageddon. He tells Doctor Manhattan. Uh, to you know, at the end, you know, well, I'm just going to give it away. Should I give it away? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, he has Doctor Manhattan. He chooses death by Doctor Manhattan over over compromising his principles, and that is an absolutely steadfast character. And you may not agree with what he with with how he how he does it when he hurts people and things like that, but you but as a character, you just love him, and that's why that's one of the reasons why actually now he was a hero in this. 
But that's one of the reasons why people love the Joker so much, Heath Ledger's Joker. Because, again, here's one he is, does not change his stance. He, he believes in chaos, and he will do anything he can to create chaos. He doesn't care about money. He won't make compromises. And when he gets caught in the end, he laughs because it's all a joke to him. People really respond to that. So, so I think they did that really well, making him the protagonist, making he, sure that the audiences felt that Rorschach was the protagonist. He really feels uh, like, probably more than anyone else, he really feels like an 80s character to me, Sean. And, and it's, it's sort of obvious what era he came out of. He's very he's very sort of dirty, hairy, sort of like uh, your typical 80s uh, film hero, really, where he, he's, he's going to do it all his own. He doesn't play by the rules. You know, he's, he's right. the Charles Bronson type character basically well matt if, uh, just a few more quick thoughts on rorschach and the Haley performance um that you know i don't not since maybe something like jo- joe pesci and goodfellas ha- have i been so intimidated by someone of such a small stature you know <laughs> um in Haley, he's a short guy and the movie doesn't try and hide that and so you know rorschach is a little guy but he will beat the hell out of you you know, and he, yeah. he's a guy that, like like Sean says, he's got such a steadfast approach, um, just to life in general, and such a, a staunch attitude uh, about where he stands. You're scared of the guy, and it doesn't really matter if he's the hero or the villain. You're going to be intimidated by him. And I think that I would be very surprised to hear somebody walking away from this movie if you ask them who was your favorite character to hear them say anybody else but Rorschach. You know, there are yeah. the there are those you know weirdos out there who uh, just develop attachments to particular characters, the less obvious ones, like, for instance, with The Dark Knight, you'll have people out there who say, I liked Harvey Dent better than the Joker in The Dark Knight. You know what I mean? It's like, whatever, man. You just, you know, that, that, that just doesn't make any sense. And you just, that, that's what Rorschach delivers. He's just kind of an automatic, and it's great. And yeah. I, I'm we just... Should, we should also look at, uh, I, I have to agree with you. You know, I think people that say Harvey Dent was their favorite character is or they're just they're just being perverse. But um, <laughs> the the uh, although I really like Aaron Eckhart, you know, but he's no he's no Heath Ledger, you know. But um, the uh, if you look at it, I, I you might think this is strange. My favorite character definitely Warshock, but Adrian Veidt, uh, Ozymandias or Ozymandias or whatever, is I mean he what they did in the in the movie that they did not do so much in the novel. Is they, melt, they let the audience know, and he said something to this effect, that he felt every death that he caused. And that he did it, you know, uh, you know to save the lives of billions, and it's, that's the same in the book and the movie. But in the, the last time we see Adrian Veidt, it's as the, um, the Archimedes is flying away, and we see him alone in his, in his um, you know, isolated castle, right, in, in Antarctica. We really see that he has suffered for what, for what he has done, even if it was, quote, the right thing to do. But uh, Rorschach obviously didn't believe it was the right thing to do because there was lying. Because Rorschach is a moral absolutist. But um, not to get too technical, but Ozymandias is a consequentialist. How are you going to help the greatest number of people you know, with whatever action you take? Okay, I killed 15 million people bad but i saved six billion people but rorschach is like if there's something that's that's wrong it has to be punished what's funny about that is that he himself works outside the law and he doesn't see himself that way 
but you know that way that way lies fascism anyway and i think that's why it hasn't really you know you can't you can't really defend rorschach in some ways but well sean uh did you think that uh adrian veidt was well cast here in the movie oh that's so funny you should ask that because when i saw the first photos that came out you know on uh i don't remember where it was it was on you know uh um what's that fat guy's site ain't it cool Ain't it cool? Yeah, right. Sorry, Harry Knowles. That's right. Uh, ain't it cool? Um, anyway, I saw the first photos there, and I'm like, wow, the comedian. Wow, look at Rorschach. Wow, blah, blah. And I saw, I'm like, who is that kid they have playing Ozymandias? You know? And but I think that his performance was very strong, and I got over my distaste of him being younger and skinny because they made him. Um, it was. It was more. It started to be more about. It would not start. The movie was more about his mom, the perfection that he had made of his body. And uh, so I think um, also he looked gay. And well, there, and I think they were make a comment about that. I don't know what exactly they were trying to say, but you know, in the scene, in the scene where uh, Night Owl is going through the files uh, of the Vite Corporation, he's got you know the different you know pyramid, and and there's a folder that just says boys. <laughs> I did not so, notice I mean, it's, that. It's like, well, and also when he's uh, uh, prancing into Studio 54 to meet, uh, you know, the David Bowie and his Ziggy Stardust get up, you know, yeah. Big Jagger. And the village people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, so <laughs> so we've got we've got out of them, we've got Captain Metropolis and Hooded Justice in the book. Where they, this was just very lightly touched on, but we're supposed to be a gay couple. Silhouette was a lesbian. Uh and Ozymandias really wasn't in the in the book so much, but in the movie is gay. And it's like you're talking about people who go out in costumes and hit people, <laughs> you know. And and even the comedian, I don't think he had any. I don't think they were representing him as gay at all. But he was so um, uh, I don't mean I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but so over the top masculine. Well, I'm going to rape Silk Spectre. I mean, who does that except if they're overcompensating? So so I thought it was interesting. There's I I don't know how I got on the subject exactly, but um, there's just a lot of a lot of oh oh Ozymandias. There's just a lot of um, homosexual uh, references and sort of illusions. And I think in that way, not I mean, Matthew Good, who played Ozymandias, isn't doesn't happen to be gay, but I thought he they 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 really made him they gayed him up, if you will. Well, he's got you know I was familiar with Matthew Good uh, his work before. Most specifically in Woody Allen's film Match Point, where he plays this uh, sort of extreme version of uh, an elite pretty boy, um, <laughs> and it's true. And you know he played it he played it very well in that movie, and he sort of brings that same sort of uh, vibe to the Ozymandias, uh role. And you know, and speaking of the uh, what, what you were just talking about, basically, I, I could barely get over the costume that he wore that looked like it was designed by Joel Schumacher's costume designer from like the Batman and Robin days like I couldn't get over that or Night Owl's dumb costumes that's one of the one of the faults of the movies I thought but um no I thought see I think that Matthew Good he you know maybe on the surface like you say he he could have been miscast but he does sort of bring that smarmy pretty boy uh persona right. that this um screen version of Adrian Veidt sort of demands i mean what kind of cojones is it safe to say i'm so great i'm going to decide that 15 million people are going to die because i think that will save the world 
Right. I mean, right. and uh, but you know, we haven't really talked about Doctor Manhattan and Billy Crudup. Um, I just want to say his. Uh, I, I think Doctor Manhattan is a fascinating character, and um, they, you know, I'm mean, just everything that happened to him and all this. But a lot. I mean, uh, so much of who he is and why he is the way he is. You have to go back and read the graphic novel. Um, the way he perceives time. All at all at once, he can see past, future, and present. They tried to do that when he's standing on Mars. You know, I oh, I'm, it's 1962 and blah blah blah. It's such a pale shadow of what they did in what he did in Alan, what Alan Moore did in in the graphic novel. And in fact, Alan Moore says it's his favorite piece of writing he's ever done. And Ben, I know that you're a good UA student in that you've obviously gone to great lengths to avoid reading a book, but. Um, <laughs> But I really think you should sit down with it. Well, because, but it made more sense, if I can just say, it made more sense in the movie, actually, to do it the way they did it. Because in the comic, well, yes, um, he can see past, present, and future at all at the same time. Because in a comic book or in a graphic novel, you can do that. It was a direct comment on how you can see the past, present, and future all at the same time in, in the graphic format. So it really didn't, wouldn't have made as much you know, sense in, in the movie. Well, let me let me give a quick reason um, that might uh, sort of counter Matt's reason for not reading the book. I don't know if he had any interest in doing it at all. I was very um, tempted to pick up the graphic novel and read it because it just there are so many different things that were just sort of about it that were calling out to me that you know were saying read this now before the movie comes out. But I, I made a conscious decision not to read the book. Heading into the movie, because and this is what I do with most uh, films that have been adapted from novels or books. I, I I think that reading the novel before I see it is going to have such a large effect on how I um, anticipate the movie, and it's going to raise my expectations to a certain extent. I could walk in there pessimistic, uh, thinking, "Well, they're not going to achieve what this book achieved," but you know, the 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 optimist in me is going to hope that I get to see everything I've read up on the screen. And I think that had I read Watchmen, there are going to be a lot of things that I look for that I wasn't going to get, and I kind of knew that. And so, you know, my mindset is see the movie first so you can watch that and be as objective as you can about the movie without having you know to compare it to the graphic novel. And then you can read the graphic novel and see everything Alan Moore was going for, and then you have sort of a, a, a stronger, less um, biased comparison. You know what I mean? Right. Well, for... Yeah, I'd like I'd like your listeners to know that I'm messing around with Matt. I think he's great. Or hey, Matt, and, and I read uh, and I, I read every single reading that we had for that zombie class. By the way, Sean. <laughs> oh no, no, I totally know that. I'm just giving Ben a hard time. But um, actually, though, I, I don't I don't know if it was Roger Ebert. I don't know, but he or she said uh, said that the best way to experience the entire Watchmen, you know, film and book, is to see the movie first, enjoy it as a movie. And then go back and read the graphic novel and experience all the backstory and read all of the little things that you would have noticed and then see the movie again. Um, there's a part in the restaurant scene, for instance, where the um, most boring actress in the world and Patrick Wilson are having that dinner. And where some, it's just it's between two bits of dialogue. You can barely catch it. She says, oh, I'd like the four-legged chicken. And people who haven't read the book probably would you not even notice that, but also we go, oh, like a chicken, what the hell is she talking about? Well, in the, in the book, you go back in the book, 
And in that scene, you see the four-legged chicken. And you see that Bubastis is this genetically modified animal and that genetic modification is really common. And so, so it made sense. So they slipped that in the movie. But when you see it, you might not even realize it. You go back and read the book. Oh, I see the four-legged chicken. You go back and, uh, and, then you, and then you get even more out of the movie. So, but it's, it's unfair for me to say that you guys, you know, should look at it one way or the other because you are film critics. You are film people. And I, while I love movies and was raised on movies, and if it wasn't for Escape from New York, my, my life would just be totally flat, I think, from then on. Um, Netflix came out before you were born, but that was a movie that, that created a whole generation of filmmakers. Um, but anyway, uh, I, you know, I'm a, a literary person. And so I come at it from, from the book. And uh, I, in fact, I refused to read Harry Potter for a long time. And then my wife said, well, the movie's coming out. And I'm like, oh, I guess i got to read it, you know. So, um, but you guys are looking at it straight, straight up as a movie, which I think is appropriate for, you know, for you do. Yeah, and I, I'm just, to me, that that's how, uh, maybe, maybe it is somewhat of a generational thing. That's how I've experienced it best in the past is uh, to watch a movie first and then, uh, like you said, it's it's kind of neat to to fill in the gaps by reading the book after you've seen the movie. I feel like, uh, first off, you know, movies are it's it's just the nature of that medium that, um, you know, you're it's all it's all you know it's all there for you. It wants to give you everything. It wants to give you the visual. It wants to give you a musical experience at the same time. It's, <laughs> it's filling your brain up. With so much, and I think if you're if you've already got preconceived notions going into it and expectations, it's it's hard to just fully experience that movie while, while you're sitting there watching it for the first time. I, I don't know that that's how it works for me anyway. Yeah. Also, you don't have the same kind of anticipation for it. I mean, you're like, oh, good. I hope this is a good movie. But you're not, you know, you're you're not like, oh god, this book. I love it so much. I can't wait to experience it on screen. You right. know, I mean, I've been waiting for the adaptation of The Road. I love that book so much, and I don't know what happened to that, but that's something when it comes out, I don't know how it could live up to how much I love that book. Sure. Right. See, it builds you up. It, see, I, you know, this sounds like I'm just like, I prefer a movie to books and books suck. <laughs> you know, but, and, you know, and, to, and to an extent, that's true. You know, I just prefer one medium to the other, you know, if I, if I had to pick. But um, when I know that there is going to be a movie out of a book, I know that if I do read that book or if I have read that book, the film experience is going to be just a little sour today unless they just completely nail it, which is a rare thing, you know? It, it is. And, um, but if, if there are any Zack Snyder naysayers out there, and I'm sure there are, look at the part that Snyder completely invented, which is the opening credit sequence. Oh man. Uh, that, none of that was, none of that was from the, from, from the graphic novel. I mean, it all, you know, refer, you know, they were fighting crime as the Minutemen, and and Silk Spectre, uh, not Silk Spectre, I'm sorry, uh, Silhouette was a lesbian, and she was murdered, and I mean, it just mentioned it. It didn't show any. And the way they did that entire opening credit sequence, you've got what in our world is the Enola Gay dropping the bomb. You've got the Miss Jupiter, right? I mean, you've got you've got Sally Jupiter's uh, retirement party set up in the exact same way as the Last Supper. Um, and it, I mean, it's got so much inventiveness and creativeness that, I mean, his first movie was a remake of a classic. Second movie was, uh, was a, a, a you know, right. A, a adaptation of a graphic novel, which was well, well, you know, loved. 
And this is the most beloved graphic novel. I want to see what Snyder does next when he's working with just his own ideas and material, which I believe is the next thing that he's doing. And because I, I actually, this sounds so strange, but I really believe in Zack Snyder. I'm with you, Sean. I really am. I think that he has had parts of legitimate greatness in all three of his movies. And, you know, most recently here with Watchmen, you mentioned the opening credit sequence and you said that that's his own creation. Then that alone, those five minutes or however long they take, that, that should be enough to make you a believer in Zack Snyder. And it, it, it's more. You know, some people might dismiss him as somebody who relies on, um, you know, technique and the visual elements of film. They might categorize him as something of like a Michael Bay type filmmaker. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't believe that at all. I think Zack Snyder is capable of making a great film. I don't know if it's going to be his next movie, the Sucker Punch movie about uh, female prison inmates, which sounds fun, but I'm not sure if that's it. But I do believe that Zack Snyder will be somebody that we grow to admire here in the very, very near future. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, to, I think it's uh, lumped in with McGee, which I think is really unfair. Oh, definitely. That's that's ludicrous. No, I mean, Zack, Zack Snyder has got uh, we've, we've mentioned his other work here. And, you know, say what you will about a lot of people have called, um, you know, the, the 2004 Dawn of the Dead a little bit uneven. Uh, I think uh, I, even at the time, I, you know, I've always said that the the opening minutes of that movie, just like just like we've said about uh Watchmen here. The opening minutes of that movie are a, a creative oh. w work that is really it's all Zack Snyder and it's really fascinating. I mean, the, the opening minutes of that movie is some of the best horror filmmaking I've seen in the last 10 years, probably longer than that. I mean, they just... It was hard for the movie to live up to? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, he just like Watchmen, he, he goes into it with some source material that uh, is held in pretty high esteem. People are expecting a lot of it. Uh, and he adds uh, something that's entirely his creation to the beginning of it, and just hits it out of the park. I mean, not not just the the uh, the opening credit sequence, which is it's just just like Watchmen. It really establishes this tone. I mean, you really right. are pulled into his world. And I think, you know, whether or not he's able to do that for the entire length of the films that he's made, the fact that he's able to uh, reach that little that little plateau at all. That's something a lot of guys don't do. Certainly McGee has never done that for me. Um, and, I mean, I know, don't, I don't, I don't hate McGee or something, but to, <laughs> but to lump Zack Snyder in and with him, Zack Snyder, I'm really honest not to overstate it, but I think is a film is a bit of a film artist. And I think McGee is a director. You know? uh, but, uh, but okay. People that, people uh, that right. I mean, he directs films technically, you know, uh, but the people who um, say that the 2004 Dawn of the Den is, is even, and I it it has it it has some tonal some tonal issues. But are they forgetting the 1978 original? Are they forgetting where you have little children being bitten and turned into zombies and and getting shot? And in another scene, you have them the the, the bikers hitting zombies in the face with pies, pies and washing in the face, off a yeah. seltzer bottle. <laughs> I mean, so it, it I mean it's it fit tonally that way. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. It's I, I think. I think the bottom line is you you look at you look at Zack Snyder. It is early in his career, despite despite his you know uh, how long he's been doing you know in the in the industry. And I I think he's achieved a lot more than a lot of other people have. And I think he's one of those guys that is he's he's definitely somebody worth taking seriously. I think I don't I don't think he's he's worth being written off uh, in, in the way that 
some of us write off the Michael Bays and the and the McGees of the world. I think there's there's definitely potential. Some of you, yeah, I, I'm, I'll put myself in there. Uh, yeah. But you know, I I think there is the potential for this guy to uh, to really make one of those uh, one of those all time classics. And and maybe maybe one of these films he's already made is gonna is gonna end up being held that way. But I think he's he's certainly worth taking seriously. A quick word about the opening credit sequence uh, really fast, which, you know, is easily one of the highlights of the film and of, you know, the, the movie year so far. Um, what I thought was so unique about this was were the earliest frames or in the first half of it uh, that to me are almost like um, slow moving still photos, you know, and they're using kind of like the signature Zack Snyder slow motion now. Um, but to me, they almost reminded me of uh, the photography of Annie Leibovitz, and you know, coincidentally, she's actually portrayed in the movie later on. Um, but if you're familiar at all with her work in the Hollywood issues of Vanity Fair, if you take a look at those portraits or uh, those uh, panoramic shots she um, makes each year, the, the, a lot of the uh, shots that you see, like particularly um, the ones where uh, the guns are going off. You know what I mean? Where you have these in slow motion where the comedian is holding that bank robber and the Tommy gun is going off in slow-mo. That was just such a gorgeous shot. And I think it's very interesting how uh, Zack Snyder, I heard in an interview recently, he said that the same person who shot this movie uh, was shooting his Super 8 movies back in college. You know, and, and how, how, how much do you think that that guy has grown since, you know, shooting Super 8 college films? So that's just, you're talking living the dream right there. Wow. Well, there, um, there was the Annie Leibovitz thing. I think is is a is a good um, is a good uh, comparison to make. But actually, the direct comparison that that's that's you know direct comparisons being made is um, with a photographer named Ouija, which is W E E G E E, and in, um, and he he's the one who took the original like he took like these you know take these lurid photos of celebrity murders and, and things happening on the street, but he was also take pictures of, like, you know, like uh, like you see with the comedian, criminals getting apprehended. And, in fact, there's a movie called The Public Eye in Joe which Pesci. Uh, Joe Pesci plays – his name isn't Ouija in the movie, but it's it's the, it's the Ouija story. And that's – that's I, I'm 99% sure that's what Zack Snyder was, was going for uh, with that. Because in each, in each thing, you notice there was a huge – flash bulb and everything right in that first half of that because they were they were taking the photographs um and it was it was just part of the the celebrity culture was the superheroes that's how it, it differed from our world another it's in and zach snyder totally invented that yeah it it's just uh i mean i i think we have to say that's 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 the the best achievement by zach snyder in this movie for sure um does anybody else have anything they want to touch on before we before we wrap up? We're we're rapidly ap- approaching the uh, one hour mark here on the on the podcast. So uh, I have one quick thing, but go ahead, Sean. I was just going to say, um, all the actors, as you guys know, have been signed to a sequel, um, which sounds like the most blasphemous thing ever, right? Yeah, um, man, the- it's definitely makes you hesitate. Yeah, well, fortunately, in a way, the opening, it had a good opening. It had the best opening of the year so far, um, but it was on the lower side of expectations, so it's not going to be this Dark Knight-sized, you know, hit. Um, also, it's rated R. 
and so I don't really think that there's going to be that much clamoring uh, for for a sequel. Well, um, here's the deal. Like you said, it's R-rated. It was a uh, big risk in the first place to even make the movie, and it's you know I I was thinking while I was watching it. And while I was feeling the three-hour running time, you know, sort of in, in my butt there for a little while during some of the Silk, Silk Spectre scenes, you know, I was just Yeah, watching... that's what you were feeling during the Silk Spectre <laughs> right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. I'm though. sorry. I apologize. No, it's fine. It's fine. That's just your nature, Sean. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> no, but l- listen, I, while I was watching this, and I think, you know, when I noticed it the most was during – uh, a Dr. Manhattan sequence. Maybe you, you remember when they were bouncing from character to character and offering, offering uh, flashback sequences? I think it was during the funeral of one of the characters, and they showed uh, Dr. Ma- I think it was the comedian's uh, funeral, I think, that they were going from character to character. I, I don't have a great memory right now. But right, that is the. Yeah, that is the Yeah, one. I remember thinking, how non mainstream is this movie? You know? Like, how out of the box is this for Hollywood or Warner Brothers to throw up $100 million to put this on the big screen? They are taking a huge risk, even though it's a superhero movie. And the the colors and the sights and the sounds and the themes, the, all of those rich parts of this graphic novel-turned-movie exist. It's extremely polarizing, and it really could leave audiences cold the ones that come to watch it and i remember thinking i wonder if anybody's going to walk out during this movie because of all of the different directions it's taking and the fact that it's not exactly spider-man you know what i mean it's not exactly it's just not your typical superhero movie and it's not trying to be like you said it's sort of a, a satire against uh superhero movies where you have superheroes that exist in this alternate universe that has this alternate history where superheroes they're not necessarily doing a whole lot of good they're just kind of there and they're sort of contributing to the awful paths uh american and i guess global history has taken and i think you know you've got to give props to warner brothers and initially 20th century fox who bailed out on it but warner brothers for actually stepping up and saying Zack Snyder, we believe in you, and we, we're going to give you $100 million. We might save $20 million so you don't do the squid sequence, uh, but we're going to give you a, $100 million to make this movie that's either going to uh, make or break us to an extent within this genre. But, you know, and just a quick thought to, to wrap up mine anyway, I, I'm just sort of grateful that we're able to experience this kind of movie uh, during the you know graveyard season of the spring uh, you know, in, in terms of the movie calendar, we've got this jam-packed, three-hour, hard-R, visually stunning, thematically rich movie that we don't normally get, uh, you know, in the springtime, and we don't normally get very often, you know? This is a superhero movie that spans so many years and is, um, it, you know, sort of has the balls to challenge history and challenge what we've come to know and suggest, um, you know, or, or kind of ask what if, uh, where a lot of people are afraid to do so, kind of in the same vein as something like The Last Temptation of Christ. You know, it's like what if somebody else uh, assassinated Kennedy, or what, what if uh, Richard Nixon was reelected, you know, you know, for a fifth term. And I think it's really unique, and, you know, a lot of that credit has to go to Alan Moore, obviously, but 
I, I really do think it takes a special kind of filmmaker to even give us what Zack Snyder, Zack Snyder was able to give us here. Even if it's not a perfect film, it's one that is definitely going to create a dialogue between, you know, fanatics of the graphic novel and just general moviegoers. And I, you know, and I'm grateful for that. Well, guys, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me for this roundtable podcast. It's been very enlightening and, uh, uh, I hope to have both of you on again for uh, for another roundtable or two over the course of this summer. I'm sure we'll have something that'll be uh, worth having our little uh, our little geek meeting about here. But um, <laughs> but I've, I've definitely uh, definitely enjoyed discussing this. Uh, I, I think we have to call the most important movie of 2009 so far. So uh, thanks for thanks for joining me in discussing this movie, guys. Thanks. Yeah.